North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Sergeant Kuntz, last episode we laid out the foundation of World War II conversation in order to get a better grip on our bearings in the current zeitgeist and the fact that, I don't know, maybe there'll be a world war, maybe there won't be, but things look bad right now. And you laid out two tracks for us to follow, the slow, tangled, complex tradition of diplomatic buildup that kind of hardens eventually two powers against each other. And then the information buildup, which is foggy, susceptible to confusion, can move very fast, especially in the modern age, and so amass a large number of people to get invested in the fight, Uh, whereas, say, during the revolutionary period, it wasn't the full population base that was invested in the fight. And in our period today, everyone's got an opinion on the war in in the Central Asia right now. So from there, do you want to review that a little bit? Yeah, I I think this is maybe easiest to understand in the place where the distinction between the diplomatic buildup and the information buildup is starkest among all the powers that eventually fight the First World War, which is America. Because the diplomatic buildup 
in the case of Europe is longstanding. We mentioned last week that it's related to the creation of a unified German state under Prussian hegemony in 1871 with the defeat of the French, the taking of Alsace-Lorraine back from France, and the rule over what is called the German Empire by a man who was formerly the king of Prussia only, just a single province, although the largest and most important of the various German-speaking states. So we could say, okay, well, then that, that political entity pursues this track and does this, and the British react in this way, and the Russians react in this way, and et cetera. The information buildup, because of the variety of events all along that time period from the 1870s down to 1914, but especially ramping up between 1905 and 1914, those things are covered by an increasingly mass press right, in polities that are sometimes explicitly Republican, such as France for most of that time, but even ones that aren't. It's simply the case that, that in the modern age, and especially with urbanization and mass literacy, people who can now be militarily mobilized because of you know, transportation technology and information technology need in some way to have specific opinions about those things. Right. You, you, could not, you could not handle mass internal dissent that would eviscerate your war effort and your war effort against another similarly positioned modern power needs to be total. So it's not as if there are no wars fought by those powers anywhere else in the world prior to the First World War. It's that to fight a, a tribe somewhere in Africa or South America does not require the opinion or total engagement of the entire British populace. The closest thing to mobilization of opinion that you know our listeners could find very easily would be to go and find articles in the British press defaming the Boers of South Africa during the First and Second Boer Wars, which happened in this time period between the 1870s and 1914. You can read that because you understand English and you can find the way that the Boers are talked about people who at that point in history are, are simply trying to live on their own, generally outside of the British Empire, having voluntarily left in the various treks that occurred earlier in the 19th century. So when you do need certain kinds of total war to be prosecuted, you need mobilization, not just of troops or technologies, the technology, let's say, of the concentration camp as we know it, is first utilized by the British in the Boer Wars to intern, especially Boer women and children who then die in those camps. But you need mobilization also of opinion. You need it because you need those people. You're going to ask sacrifices of them. Gas prices are going to go up, for example, and you need them to tell themselves that it's a virtuous thing that gas prices are going up, just for an example contemporary to us. So the diplomatic buildup is whatever it may be. It may be incredibly complex. In fact, it generally is because even small groups of human beings are extremely complex, let alone nations and you know, alliances of entire nations, extremely complex, diverse interests, interests mutually conflicting within the same nation, right? The information buildup doesn't have to be complex. And in the case of America, the, the division between diplomatic buildup and, and information buildup is amazing. 
<laughs> because the diplomatic buildup is that our ruling class in the 19 teens is still overwhelmingly, as our country is still at that time, even on an ethnic level, Anglo-Saxon. And so their natural sympathies are with the British whenever the British are fighting. That just simply is the case. It's also the reason that the different regions of the United States were more or less decisively for or against the war, even once we entered, right? So the American South, which has the lowest, probably even still today, the lowest number of immigrants, even, even 19th century, let alone 20th century immigrants, is decisively in favor of the First World War, okay? The American Midwest, which has the largest number of Germans, for example, is decisively against American entrance into the First World War, okay? Now, what's going to happen with those opinions, and the reason I bring it up is because, also because if our listeners are English speakers, they can go back and they can find these things, you know, ask our seminaries for these resources in their archives if you can't find them. But you can find Missouri Synod Lutherans, Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, talking more than Missouri Synod in English about entrance into the war. And what is fascinating about this is that you can tell that they... They are feeling the weight of not having reflexive sympathy with Britain. Now, they don't really feel that weight very heavily in 1914 and 1915 and even in 1916 largely, okay? Because American public opinion of any ethnicity is decisively against the First World War, against our entrance into the First World War. We don't really have much of a diplomatic buildup. The buildup that we do have to return to something that we mentioned in the episodes on banking is largely, to put it politely, subterranean. Okay. If you remember, we said that the, the major banking houses in New York, which control our financial relationship to the rest of the world, are of two ethnic varieties at this time. What are called Yankee, generally actually of specifically New England descent, we said. And then on the other hand, Jewish. And those the, the Jewish banks are usually German in nationality, let's say. So Kuhn and Loeb and, and so on. And neither of those groups is really a very big fan <laughs> of the Germans. So both of those parties, that is the entirety of Wall Street, such, uh, such as pertains to financing things, war efforts, the war efforts of combatants, Neither of those groups is in favor of the well-being of the central powers. So that's that. But almost everyone else in the country is against our entrance into the war. And the slogan that we've mentioned for the sitting president, then re-elected in 1916, Woodrow Wilson, is that he kept us out of the war, right? That's, that's a boast of a man who, you know, four or five months after his re-election will have us into the war on April 6, 1917, because the diplomatic buildup is almost entirely subterranean. And something happens in the First and Second World Wars that then happens later after our Second World War with other foreign powers, notably Israel. We've mentioned Mossad in connection with Epstein before. But it happens in the First and Second World Wars also with the British that they send spies <laughs> one of whom is the very strange man, Aleister Crowley. They send spies basically to not only to find out what is going on in the United States, but also to sway public opinion as well as official opinion on the war. 
And so, for example, one way that this happens is that the American public except largely German speakers who have access to other media sources will be unaware of the economic devastation, starvation, malnutrition, just general destruction of everyday life occurring because of the allied blockade of Germany, which has been going on since 1914, right? They, Americans will just not really know that that's happening, right? So they're not receiving sympathetic photos of German women starving to death, okay, with their children. They're, they're not seeing that. They've heard that the Germans violated Belgian neutrality, <laughs> okay, which, which the British, yes, technically are supposed to defend based on a treaty going back to 1839. But we know now that the British cabinet agreed, even in July 1914, you know, we don't care about that too much. Like, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> But the Americans will be told that the Germans have committed horrible atrocities. Stop me if you've heard any of this before. They've committed horrible atrocities. The Germans will be portrayed as apes, animals, subhumans, just as the Japanese will be along with the Germans in the Second World War. And so Americans will generally know that. What they will also know is that the Germans have sunk shipping. They have sunk commercial liners that have civilians on them. Okay. Americans will not know that that has happened on both sides. Americans will not know that the Germans are doing that in a desperate bid to break the blockade. Americans will not know why the Germans are doing that. And I'm not saying any of that to say like, just like what we talked about with Ukraine and Russia last time, I'm not saying that to say the Germans were the best. We should have entered the war on the side of the Germans. I'm saying that to say that when they needed us, okay, and partly this is because by 1917, the Germans have become vastly more militarily proficient than the Allies, and they have won the war on the Eastern Front. So the Allies are pretty worried. The American entrance into the war is not accidental. But in order to prepare the American people, the information ramp up will portray the Allies as unstained. And it will portray the Germans as utterly evil. And now you understand why the Missouri Synod Lutherans were so terrified during the First World War and why in certain cases, pastors and teachers were whipped or assaulted or why, at least apocryphally, some people brought American flags into Lutheran churches. If that even happened, I'm not sure. Well, they're there um, now. At that time. They're yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely there. Yeah, they're definitely there now. <laughs> But the reason for that is because the people like Synodical Conference Lutherans were the bad guys. Imagine if you had entire rather large church bodies in you know, large regions of the country, all our major cities that worshipped in the language of the people who have become the definition of metaphysical evil within roughly a couple of months. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. to, right now, imagine that, you know, all of that, our church body, LCMS, is in fact a Russian-speaking immigrant population, you know, two generations removed, but everything we've got is kind of a Russian heritage. And and what's being done right now to, what, vodka and Russian restaurants uh, in, in America, right? So, um, <laughs> right. right now, I, I, think, I think the present is actually maybe a bit weaker than um, what was being done back then because there, there was more time in which this happened. If this goes on for another two or three years, uh, we would know what that would feel like a little bit. Right. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, demonization maybe is, is the best word for what happens where you go from Germans being generally admired such that, you know, many, you know, say major conductors of symphonies in the United States are Germans to those men losing their jobs within a matter of months because they're Germans. So that, that process can occur extremely quickly. And the U S is the best example because the diplomatic buildup is kind of nothing, you know, don't quote the Zimmerman telegram to me. <laughs> That's selective attention to machinations going on on all sides to get us into or keep us out of the war at various points. Our financial interests have a have a very good have a very great interest in supporting the allies because they have loaned vastly more to the allies than any American institution loaned to the central powers. So we have a big financial stake in seeing those people win. And also, once we are drawn in, we have an enormous stake in making sure that we are telling ourselves that what we're doing, we are doing for the best of moral reasons. This is why I was pleading on the last episode for people, even just individually, to let themselves look bad to themselves. Because the the heart of a lot of folly in American policy is that we never allow ourselves to look bad to ourselves. We always go to war for the best reasons even when I am old enough to remember even just the same verbal incantations being used for Afghanistan and Iraq that I can now hear our people, our elites, our media using to get us into Ukraine. He's a madman. He's a madman. Um, you've used the term total war a couple of times and yeah. uh, something tells me that's a technical term. And so would you d- define that a bit more? And then let's go from there into how does a war move from, from limited to total? Total war involves, this is my synthesis, right? It is a technical term, but my synthesis would be total war involves the potential for anyone to become a combatant. Okay. And therefore to be bombed, to be maimed, to be killed, to have everything taken from him in the same way that in previous pan-European wars that no one knows anything about, the war of the Austrian succession was not the case. It was always recognized that devastation would occur for civilians in and around and in the wake of armies. Everyone has always admitted that. And it's, it's a reason that, for instance, the Thirty Years' War is much more keenly remembered in, say, the German-speaking world than it is in the English-speaking world because of the devastation wrought upon civilians where that war occurred. It was not the case, however, that people thought that you know, the rape of women or the destruction of people's farmsteads was somehow morally justified in connection with that war. Okay. So the purpose of war was therefore, and therefore the targets of war were therefore limited, not only theoretically, but practically, right? So you couldn't say, well, I'm going, I'm going to war again, you know, in medieval Europe, I'm going to war against the Burgundians to destroy all Burgundians because all Burgundians are evil, right? You can't do it. So now in modernity, I have a variety of factors. Quigley identifies what he calls democracy, but he's not really talking about a political process. He's talking about there being a mass of people who can be addressed simultaneously. So it's mostly a media process is what Quigley means by democracy. You know, 
here are all the people within the reach of a newspaper or even later and less demandingly a radio or even later and less demandingly a smartphone. And so they have information being put in front of them. So now they can be engaged and they, they're going to have opinions now that now they hate all krauts. Well, now they hate all Japs. Now they hate all those, you know, they hate Charlie. Now they hate Saddam. Now they hate the Taliban because they're oppressing women. Okay. And now they hate Putin because he's an evil dictator. Okay. So that target can be directed through Quigley calls it democracy. But again, he's not saying like the way decisions are made in the town meeting. He's saying a mass of people. He, he's really talking about a mass public is what he means. So I have that domestically that can be addressed. And those people because of the technological reasons that we discussed earlier can be mobilized, right? So, I mean, because of the internet, there are people who were on Reddit two months ago and now are in the Ukraine. Like, I don't know how many people of those there are. Yeah, there's but, some though, something. Yeah, but they, yeah, yeah, golly. They, 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 they exist, right? So that, that exists, right? That exists in any, in any age. There are always people getting involved in wars that are, you know, but those people are generally explicitly mercenaries okay explicitly mercenaries and they're not there right the assorted you know swiss mercenaries fighting in medieval italy are not there because they're saying yes the security of switzerland the security of our homesteads the fact that our wives can sleep at peace in their beds at night is because we're fighting here in italy for the pope yeah, it's not ideal it's not about right. ideals no it's not an ideal and there is something more fundamentally Christian about that, recognizing that there are nasty things that sometimes have to happen that are not ideal in which I do not need to seek my justification, right? I do not need to seek my justification because I went to war. Notice how, I, I, and this is a little more outré, okay? But I, Quigley has this offhanded reference to how the gods of the nations in modern times become fewer because the nation is more unified in its opinions, in its mobilization, in its tastes, okay? That the search for justification by ideal, especially ideals headed into something that is so obviously, so, so tangibly destructive, that that justification by ideal is something that is, as it were, unique to modern wars because it's actually possible to convince a bunch of people at the same time that they are doing this for some high purpose. It's also why something appears in modern times. And I was, I was pondering this because preparing for these episodes, I've been constantly thinking about this book that I was forced to read and hated at the time, but I couldn't really tell you why, in high school English class, which was All Quiet on the Western Front hmm. by Eric Maria Remarque, who's a German. And I was not given <laughs> a much more entertaining book, certainly for a 15-year-old boy, which would have been Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger. Okay. And I think I was given Eric Maria Remarque because I was supposed to imbibe the lesson of pacifism. Why is pacifism, which is such a niche position in human history, certainly in Western history, 
why does pacifism appear in relatively large numbers or that it's perhaps reflexive for many people in modernity, that they want to avoid all conflict whatsoever? Why does that occur? It's because I think they think that life is a series of confrontations in which they are proven right, like we said last week. But here they would be proven right not by prosecuting some kind of morally ideal war. They would be proven right by refusing to engage in war because war is so bad and they're not bad people. So they would never get involved in anything in which they could look bad to themselves. That there is a sort of narcissism about pacifism. So like the, the comment yeah. about the right side of history comes to mind there. Oh, and totally. As opposed yeah. to just doing what's right, right? I, 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 somehow my life matters enough to the future, you know, 300 years from now. Uh, I'm just so central to that. And that everybody who's got a smartphone is so central to that, that all of our, yeah. our cumulative uh, moral decisions uh, somehow are painting a picture for, I don't, I don't know what it's, it's a strange, yeah. it's a strange thing. You put your finger on it. You're going to talk about it better than I did. So. Yeah. Yeah. Go. No, no, I, I mean, it's, it, it is, it is because we have forsaken the judgment of God. Hmm. If I understand that I am to be judged by God and as a Christian, I am judged by God for the sake of Jesus Christ. And therefore I have died to the world and the world is dead to me. Then I do not need to seek justification even within my own mind, according to my own lights. And that, that doesn't mean that I therefore just do whatever and I don't care. And I'm, you know, morally, you know, just heinous. It means, it means that I recognize that the realm of human affairs, whether individually or corporately, nationally, internationally, that that human realm is not a place in which I am going to find the kind of justification I am seeking that is only available by faith in Christ. It's just not there. Therefore, I need to stop looking for it. And I really need to distrust people when they tell me that it's available somewhere other than through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what's happening when I'm told that I will be a better person because I do this or don't do that, or because I drive the electric car or because I'm vegan or because I hate Putin, or whatever, right? That is the same kind of magical power over my life, religious power over my life, that we were talking about when we talked about Weimar Germany and Hitler. They have magic words, they have priestly rituals, and they're trying to promise you another kind of justification. And it's, I mean, the thing about those forms of justification, those demonic forms of justification, is that they also blind me to my own evil. And I become certain about things about which I should just remain uncertain and then act in accord with the fact that I don't know. So to give you an example, with America in the First World War, I think we mentioned before that just prior to our entry into the First World War, we do have troops mobilized in our very small standing army which we had because we were worried that having a large defense establishment is fundamentally destructive to Republican government because the founders actually read history. So they knew that we we had parts of our small standing army, as well as parts of our national guard mobilized on the Mexican border because of fallout from Mexico's own political turmoil. Okay. It's pretty concrete 
It involved in a very romantic way, not possible on the Western Front, the use of cavalry. The aesthetics of some of those troopers are on point. (laughs) If you're looking for some military aesthetics, my great-grandfather was one of those cavalrymen. But it, it involved something that was tied to our national interest, which is the security of our own national borders. But most Americans don't know anything about that because it didn't involve anything more than that, right? This is, this is your dad, you know, grabbing the shotgun and walking outside in his bathrobe to see what's going on. It's not glamorous, but it, it is concretely defensive of the people under his authority, Okay. Some of those same troops, including one of their commanders, John Pershing, will then be transferred rather immediately and directly to the Western Front once we enter the war. And they will do that not because we had some kind of really intensive need to decide between the Germans or the French for the hegemony of the European continent, but because both our financial interests, some of our elite ethnic attachments, both Anglo-Saxons and Jews, and to some degree, just sheer bloody mindedness on the part of our media, which always does well when there's a war, got us into something that at least we, most of us thought in, I don't know, October, 1916, didn't concern us. Yeah. 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 So um, I think we're backtracking maybe a touch here again, but uh, painting the picture, Germany doesn't really exist before this war, right? They're they're there. It's a language. It's a region. What we what we think of as Germany, kind of as a heritage, was already there. But this was their moment to to kind of come into existence, and uh, that definitely plays a part in all of this. That is that what you're getting at when you're talking about how Germany changed. Yeah, Germany Germany does not exist as a unified nation state before 1871. So it is the buildup to the First World War that tracks with that unification affected largely by the political brilliance of Otto von Bismarck. And that unification specifically excluded Austria-Hungary from, even though Austria, obviously not Hungary, Austria is part of that larger German cultural orbit, let's mm-hmm. say, along with parts of what's now Romania, Czechia, Volga Germans in Russia, and certainly the Alsatians, which is the, uh, that's the origin of the Kuntzes. So there, there's a decisive political alignment that has not existed before. The thing that that upsets, diplomatically speaking, not speaking in terms of media buildup, which flits all over the place, the thing that that changes diplomatically is that it provides a counterweight, a viable counterweight to Britain in Europe. And Britain had not through necessarily occupational force, the stationing of armies, but through its naval hegemony had been the ruling power in the world since the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Okay, so you have a period of time somewhat similar to the time since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, where you have something like, and I don't want to overstress this, and I don't want to say it's all the same, but you have something like a unipolar world, similar to what is now passing away, Mm -hmm. we recognize in Russia and China's self-assertion without fear of consequences or much fear 
from American reaction, right? So the Germans are asserting themselves. And the question between 1871 and 1914 is what exactly will not only the Russians and the French and the Serbians and the Bulgarians more obscurely, but, but especially the British do about that. Right. And yeah. And Bismarck is very careful not to antagonize the British. When he is fired by Kaiser William II, William, who is actually, I mean, blood related to <laughs> the British royal family, William II is not nearly so careful, is much more openly jealous and much more openly antagonizes the British in a way which is to some degree surprising for everybody because Germany changes in becoming something in the First World War and certainly in the way that people now think of Germans and the Germans have even been taught to think of themselves, like they're like inherently dangerous and evil if something is just like unleashed, you know, but prior to German unification and certainly prior to the First World War, Germans are thought of as uniquely productive artistic, philosophical, something like the reputation that maybe the French have in American popular culture, artistic, interesting. You would go to Germany to like learn a lot. I mean, mo I mean, American science and even academia generally is really parasitic upon German academia in the 19th century and early 20th century. That's how you actually get a, a New England Yankee, Caspar Rene Gregory, who's a New Testament scholar telling all of his sons who have been raised in Germany, where he teaches the Bible to enlist and they all die in the first world war fighting for Germany, such as his admiration of German culture. So that the German one way in which Germany changes is not only diplomatically and militarily, but it also changes in the kinds of information that people are getting about it. You know, this is not the land of poets and, you know, Denker und Dichter thinkers and poets this is the land of evil, rapacious, militaristic, destructive people. And that, that is the way in which the information flow changes radically in the Western press. Yeah, right. So, so Germany goes from being a, uh, a civilizational peak for the sake of arts and sciences. Right. That yep. leads it to be a, a rising power diplomatically and that then causes a threat to what was a civilizational peak, what, 100 years before that, maybe, although Britain, it wasn't really arts and sciences in Britain, but it certainly was militarily able to market, uh, manage, uh, trade, create an empire. Um, and that empire is being challenged by a civilization that, that really does have some, some guts to it. Um, to prove to the listeners that I listen to the Joe Rogan episodes that matter, I, I think this is what uh, <laughs> Nawat's uh, Nawat's called the the Thucydides trap. Are you familiar with that terminology? No, no, no? What's that? I, yeah, I've, that's why I asked the um, Thucydides trap. The idea is, and this has to come from Thucydides, whose story I don't know. Uh, but the idea is that you have a unipolar power that then suddenly is challenged by a rising power, and yeah. that the trap is that the unipolar power has to be able to cede some reality to that rising power because it in fact is not strong enough to stop it. And if it doesn't do that successfully, it becomes a full inversion and, and right. topples. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, that is the British German tension. There are, there are so many, there are so many others, right. And the, 
the the entanglement that occurs are a set of commitments that are you know you have to like in order to understand how they fit together and i would recommend just getting quigley or any other book that covers this in order to track them if you're interested you have to know for example okay the italians originally get into an alliance with germany and austria to ensure themselves strange as it may sound now to ensure themselves a, a coherent political position over against what is still the papal state what yeah. is not yet vatican city sorry i just gotta laugh that at dis- it. <laughs> yeah that's weird it's weird but true right so <laughs> as that dissipates over time that threat from the papal state and the political the the functional political power of the papacy italy's very tenuous need to care about the protection of Austria-Hungary evaporates. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the Italians will not rush in with everyone else in 1914. And then in 1915, well, well, you know, no longer friends with Austria-Hungary, now friends with, with France, and they're in the war on the exact opposite side. So they also have no investment in the colonial strife between Germany and Britain, because they're their sole colonial endeavors are in Northeastern Africa. And so the Germans can't help them up there. So those kinds of factors have to be reckoned for, accounted for in any given understanding of, okay, why did this power come in when it did? The Russians saw themselves as the protectors of the Slavs. That's why when Austria-Hungary goes against Serbia, the Russians have to enter in to protect Serbia okay, the Russians are actually kind of a backward country trying to industrialize really fast, kind of like, I don't know, the Chinese in the past 30 years. And that's largely funded by London and Paris banks. So of course, Russia is much more beholden to France and Britain than to Germany. So all of that complexity is going to get us into concretely why a war happens. Mm -hmm. Those shifting alliances on what is a formerly presumptively British globe, I think matter less than the capacity of various power brokers, including financiers in various nations to push public opinion in the direction of support for these wars. Because when that disappears, okay, so the best test case of this is Russia because Russia <laughs> Russia loses to Germany, right? So that they're, they're like, you know, in, in like group play in the World Cup, they're like the guy that like gets beat by the side that gets destroyed by everybody else. So, you know, that's Russia in the First World War. Russia's loss will create total domestic political instability, right? Mm-hmm. So Yes, the Germans do ship Lenin back to Ru- back to Russia. Yes, they did that. But he was being shipped into a political situation, which was already as volatile as it was and had already changed as much as it had with the bringing in of a kind of a quasi-monarchic constitutional, maybe parliamentary republic. Uh, parliamentary democracy with Kerensky as the head of government in 1917, that had all happened because they had lost 
a war which had mobilized their entire country. And when you do that, right? So understand that the stakes here for everybody are enormous. So imagine for yourself that we go to war with Ukraine. All right. I don't follow mainstream news enough to say how much they're discussing what we could potentially do in Ukraine, which obviously our elites, obviously Silicon Valley, obviously Fortune 500 companies, obviously all the buildings in a city near you that are lit up in Ukrainian colors right now, obviously want. Okay. Amazon wants this, you know, whatever, right? They all want this. I, I have not really seen that discussed in connection with, not even like pragmatically, in connection with what we just failed to do for the past two decades in Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Like that would kind of make sense. So like if I failed to run a mile yesterday and I tell you today, I'm going to run three miles, you would be a good friend if you said to me, well, why did you fail to run even a mile yesterday? I mean, are you sure you want to run three miles? Because yesterday we were loading the 82nd Airborne Division onto big planes and we were doing that after two decades, and I don't know how many deployments just for that division, let alone 10th Mountain Division, let alone, you know, blank state National Guard. We did all that. And that was not a nuclear power we were fighting. <laughs> that was not a power with something like first world military capacity. Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that didn't work. So, I, I mean, I, like... I'm not even saying like, oh, don't go to war in Ukraine. I mean, I, I am saying that. I'm just saying for the purposes of just kind of sandboxing what our elites obviously want to do, why wouldn't we have think pieces, as the chattering classes call them, about what did we do wrong in Afghanistan? And therefore, what could we do better in Ukraine? You know, how, how can we, you know, win hearts and minds on the ground in, in the, in, you know, the, the Donbass. Okay, right? can, I, can I be a complete cynic? I mean, yeah. didn't we get out of Afghanistan so we could go to Ukraine? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's the, the only reason I'm struggling to say yes with that is because I can imagine scenarios in which we get out of Afghanistan in order to engage more fully in Nigeria or we get out of Afghanistan in order to engage explicitly in Venezuela. You know what I mean? Like I, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And, and I see how that would be more reasonable. But when you've got financial investments in Ukraine, it just sounds yeah. like a one-to-one -one analogy here. Right. When, right. when you've already put all of your eggs in that basket. And so what, what are you really getting out of Afghanistan? You got Iraq and that's why you went there. And so – now you want to get out of something that really is just fighting over dust in order to go somewhere where you are, in fact, trying to extend uh, the edge of your empire and threaten what you believe to be uh, a paper bear uh, to just encroach, encroach, encroach and take from it. You've already, And again, the, the, the money has been put there. They've invested militarily in the coup, we've called a coup, in the replacement government, which is there. Yeah, uh, right. And so, yeah. I again – who am I and what do I know? But it, it just kind of smells like it wasn't exactly on accident that we pulled back here so we could press forward there 
and uh, the play-by-play just seems too easy to call. I don't like that. And someone, you know, call me out. Tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. Uh, th- that's kind of our, as an aside here. Th- that's our point, right? Like we have to be able to just not be that emotionally invested in saying, "Wow, why is this happening?" Um, yeah. But from from where I'm at, uh, I would say that the the argument ag- against our military being able to do what it what the elites think it will do in Ukraine, based on Afghanistan, only works if we aren't in fact preparing. For for this on purpose for financial interests. I think the argument against the military being able to do what it's able to do uh, has a lot more to do with, you know, gender theory being taught in the school yeah, and military right. right now. So Right. Yeah. I think I think that something that we maybe haven't talked about which which is not nearly so much of a reality in the first world war except in the cases of the countries that lose when they do lose. So Russia after 17, Germany after 18 is something that appears to me to be certainly going on in the United States. And I thought about this the other day because Susan Rice, who was the major foreign policy advisor in the Obama administration, is in the Biden administration, a domestic policy advisor. So I think about all the things that happened, including the coup in Ukraine, a color revolution during the Obama administration. And I think to myself, gee whiz, I wonder why those people are involved in domestic policy in the United States. That's kind of weird. Uh-huh. And so, so this, this thing is a factor that I am not really sure exists in any country in the First World War, except among out-and-out communists. <laughs> but it but it appears to exist in our country and and it is this if i can if i can put a, a name on it it is a desire not only to send a people to war but also simultaneously to destroy and humiliate that people even as they are sent to war mm-hmm. so not that that hasn't already occurred but it is so explicit now right so you know you you may have, you may you may be categorically evil because you're cisgendered, or you live in a traditional marriage, or you're white, or you're male, or whatever the problem is with you. But you probably could redeem yourself if you went to fight Putin, and you know you you probably wouldn't actually, and, and your brother would probably still die of a fentanyl overdose next month, but you know, at least you fought, at least you fought Putin. And that, that reality, and it's not even collapse. Collapse is when a building is poorly built and it falls down. Controlled demolition is when you set up the explosives and, you know, go find a video of, you know, them blowing up these, you know, baseball and football stadiums from the seventies, you know, they fall down in a certain way that is different from collapse. That, you know, yeah, the dollar's losing value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there are bioweapons. Victoria Newland admitted that there are bioweapons in Ukraine. Which again, I heard- back to Putin being reasonable. Like, like <laughs> if that's true, and I'm king, I'm going to do something about it, you know? And golly. Yeah. I, I also love the fact that her dad is like a, an eminent bioethicist at Yale. Oh, and uh, Yeah. So Sherwin Newland. So- 
that's happening, but it, it, it would appear to me, right? And this is something that I'm very concretely interested in and I do know something about. It would appear to me, not just that they're trying to get us into a war and that that will, obviously that war is a destructive force, sometimes necessary, but a destructive force. So we understand that, for example, there would be casualties. Sure, yes, that's, that's the way that, that war occurs, right? But that simultaneously, and this has already been happening in, with Afghanistan and Iraq, simultaneously in the very same places where, for example, at the high school I went to, we all took the vocational aptitude battery, the ASVAB, I think it's Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. It's a test that you take to get into the military. That was just administered to everyone, which the SAT was not, in my high school. The reason being, my high school is precisely the kind of a place that you get trigger pullers from in the American military. And then recruiters call you incessantly for years. Even, yeah, they just, because those are the kind of people that we need to pull the trigger. Those same people in or out of the military, their lives are horrible. And a veteran told me this a man for whom I have a great deal of love. I know he listens, so he knows I'm talking about him. He said, you know, I think a lot of these guys kill themselves when they come back, not just because war is evil. That's always been the case. And and there have always been veteran suicides, not in the same proportions, maybe. But it happened after the Civil War. It happened after the First and Second World Wars, but maybe not in the same proportions. He said, I, I'm not sure that they kill themselves just because they went to war. I think they kill themselves because their lives sucked already. And when they come back, now they went to war and their life still sucks. Mm-hmm. And so it may be the guy that went to war. It may be his brother. It may be his sister. But you know their prescription is mixed up with fentanyl at this point. So they're going to die faster. They have no job prospects. Inflation eats away at everything they have. And so when I think about that, I think, you know, hey, it's pretty, it looks like we had a color revolution and it looks like the American people did not benefit from it, (laughs) just like all the other ones. And so that's why I just have a lot of trouble taking any of the calls to moral purity and uh, lcms.org slash Ukraine very seriously. Happy to pray, happy to help. There are Christians on both sides, just like the First World War, by the way. But I'm not sure that I know enough. But I do know about the overdoses. I know about the deaths of despair, divorces, pornography addiction. That's all happening here, and, and we just don't talk about it. You know, So I just have trouble taking other things seriously since we just don't talk about the things right in front of our eyes. I mean, to say out loud, I'm glad you said it. It looks like we had a color revolution. Um, I think that alone is the unacceptable thought that most of our listeners already kind of have. Yeah, yeah, they know it. They yeah. know it. And so <laughs> what does this mean? Um, how do you serve Caesar when Caesar desires to destroy and humiliate you to demolish you not because you're a christian yeah it has nothing to do with you being a christian but just because you're a roman citizen uh and he has 
financial plans to outlast his own empire. And uh, in fact, uh, to profit by his destruction. And this is where, again, I, I don't know, does World War One even give us a parallel to this? Is there a parallel in history to the kind of thing we're seeing? Yeah, uh, the, the, the parallels exist in the places that lost. Because I guess what I'm saying is we already lost something, right? A color revolution is a sort of, sort of like the word socialism is a polite way to say communist, okay? That your country will not be governed for the benefit of that people. However, poorly, however, harshly, but it won't be governed for the benefit of that people. It will be governed for the benefit of whatever parasitic classes are ruling over it, hold whatever levers of power, financial, political, entertainment, et cetera. So if that's the case, then it's sort of like the question from last week about forming a community of your own. And it's the reason that I am generally supportive of efforts, not only like that one, but also all of the various kinds of experiments, the, the, the classical college in Wyoming, all kinds of things that people are trying out. Because if you are going through this time in history and you can't admit that both something else would be better and you don't exactly know everything about what could be better, and therefore you have such a lack of humility that you think you understand everything about what anyone else could be doing, rather than simply supporting them and critiquing as a friend rather than as a critic, as a supporter, rather than as a detractor, right? Then, you know, you're not paying attention because if we don't build things, no one, no one is going to do it because obviously our own government is hostile even to people that are most reflexively and symbolically loyal to it, right? I mean, the people in the trucker convoy in Canada were waving Canadian flags. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They want to support that country. That country just doesn't want to support them. So if that's the case, then you have to support one another because no one is going to just support you in return for your loyalty. So if you're in the military right now, and I know we have military listeners, we have a lot of retired or former military listeners of various kinds. And the, re the reason we do is because those people know better than almost anyone else what the score is, then you know that we have to care for one another because it's not like the big guys are going to care for us. They obviously don't. So to open up where we're going to go next time, I, which is where we've been, World War I, yeah. shot, were, shot heard around the world. Uh, quite, a, quite a story in and of itself. Uh, yeah. the, the accidental nature of the whole thing, stalled cars and uh, guys who were kind of where they're supposed to be and then not and just happened to be there. Um, <laughs> it, it really is something. It's almost as if yeah. God, God planned it, right? Providence right. just said, yep, this is going to happen now, yeah. um, which it, whatever you want to say about that, I mean, let's just import that immediately to where you are and where we just had this conversation. Yeah, yeah, this is where God wants you to be right now. Right. He wants you to be right here, right now for the good of his church, which is you and the people who feast with you on the words and sacraments of Jesus. That means your kids. 
And that doesn't mean their best life now. It doesn't mean that all the land you have right now or could have is going to be everything you ever wanted to be with three cars in the pool and all this kind of stuff. But it does mean that on the day of resurrection, the fire that you're in right now is going to be that thing which purified you to have an absolute trust in the true God to see you through it. And uh, to, to go into all of this again with that kind of certainty makes us as a people something altogether peculiar uh, in what the regulatory capture communist state is going to attempt to do. Others have no buttress like we have a buttress. And there's something definitely to be said for their incompetence. We've talked about that in the past. Uh, yeah. As big as all this is, they don't seem to really know what they're doing. <laughs> and so like, uh, well, again, to lay down real roots in the certainty that the providence of God is going to establish your communion as a community where you are is to know that a hundred years from now, it's a different game and just standing firm uh, is, is to plant roots that grow. So um, shot, shot heard around. I can't say it as a tongue twister shot heard around the world. Go. Yeah. You can look at things as circumstantial, accidental, bemoan them as avoidable tragedies the much more Christian attitude and, and increasingly the motto of this show is, is simply this, which you need to know is that providence is real. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Jesus Christ, depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. That's Proverbs 3, 7 and 8. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power.